I want to read to you the first uh, 11 verses of John 15. And in one sense, um, it's slightly out of context in that when you know John's gospel, what we're looking at here is a passage that sits right at the heart of a, a lengthier discourse in which Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the very night that he was arrested and in which he was um, betrayed and ended up um, being condemned to be crucified. Um, So it may seem odd to jump into the middle here, and yet, of course, this particular passage that we're looking at has long been recognized as having a unique uh, message and power and importance for disciples of Jesus, for followers of Christ. I want to read you the first 11 verses and then we'll begin to uh, pull apart what we need to understand and see here in this passage. Jesus, uh, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father, we do want to ask, Lord, let us see beautiful, wonderful things in your word and let the Spirit of God be at work to bring to life your living word to our hearts this evening. Amen. Well, as I said to you a moment ago, I think this passage has long been recognized as an extraordinarily important one for many reasons, but let me just mention a couple at the outset. Partly the context in which Jesus is speaking here. When uh, he had been with his disciples for these previous three years, discipling them, training them, preparing them, equipping them, shaping them for the call and the mission that they were yet to embark upon in the years ahead, it all comes to this kind of moment of commissioning when he is leaving in their hearts and their minds some final thoughts before he is about to be crucified. They don't really understand that he's about to be killed, but he does, he knows it. And so there is a poignancy just by way of the context of this passage and a weightiness and a seriousness and a gravity to the moment because of the occasion on which he's speaking. And then, of course, the content of what he's saying immediately will strike you because of its importance. He's using very strong language of fruitfulness and of burning and destruction and of the necessity and the charge to remain in him. And therefore, I think that the disciples would have sat there a little stunned and taken aback at the force with which he was speaking to them. And we need to hear what he has to say. 
We're going to spend a few weeks in this passage, I anticipate. And as I was studying and working it through um, in some detail, I began to realize that the normal approach I might take in a passage of Scripture where you work sequentially through it wasn't going to be appropriate here because what you discover is that this passage is like a tightly weaved rope of a number of strands or a plait of a number of strands of big ideas to do with prayer and to do with fruitfulness and to do with obedience and these sorts of ideas. And therefore, I rather want to return to it a few, on a few occasions and pull out a different strand each time that we read it. And today, I want to focus in particular what I think is the central idea that, that comes through and that hits you first of all, which has to do with this idea of abiding in Christ. He in us, but also we in him, what it means to abide in Christ. And so that's where we're going to begin today and try and understand better what Jesus is saying to them and to us. What is meant then by this command or this instruction to abide in Christ? You'll immediately see just how important this is. If you just glance down at the fifth verse, for example, he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is very extreme language. He's saying that on this pivotal matter of whether you as a follower of Jesus are abiding in Christ depends whether your life is one of abundant fruitfulness and usefulness for the kingdom or whether you are effectively a dead branch. And then there is perhaps even more frighteningly the warnings that come through here as well. If anyone does not abide, he says in verse 6, In me he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Therefore, to understand what he has to say here, I think, is of the highest importance to our walk with Jesus and our discipleship. But let me, before I speak positively to what I believe are the, what are the meaning, what is the meaning of this phrase, I just want to quickly rule out what I think maybe our assumptions about this phrase and a few wrong turns that I think we may have made, and which I think I have made in the past as I've read this passage, given it a cursory reading at least. One is to say that I don't think Jesus is speaking here about a mystical experience of him in your Christian walk. I think it's easy to construe it that way, that when Jesus says, abide in Christ, that this has to do with a, a way of experiencing or practicing spirituality in which you, you know that deep connection with Jesus on a heart-spiritual level. And there are certainly strands of the church that emphasize above all that kind of mysticism or mystical spirituality. And I'm not saying that that isn't important to understand and learn uh, what is going on there and why a communion with Jesus in your day-to-day life is important. I'm not saying that that's irrelevant. But I don't think that's the intention here. And I don't think that that's what Christ had in mind when he said, abide in me. It may result in a deeper fellowship with him in that way, but I don't think that's what he's calling for. And in fact, I don't think this is necessarily something that you could, you would, you can't measure your, the degree to which you're abiding in Christ by an experience in any case. Um, I don't think that this is something that you can kind of put the pulse on your life and say, am I really abiding in Christ today or not? Am I engaging with him in this deep way or not? That's not what he had in mind here. So I just want to push that idea to one side. Another wrong turn, I think, is to associate this with 
your involvement with the church. And I say that because obviously when Jesus describes this image of the vine in, in the field, he's the, the trunk of the vine and we're the branches, that immediately you have this corporate element that we're together with Christ. And to be part of the vine is to be part of the people of God. And elsewhere in the New Testament, that language is used in that way. Paul talks about being part of the people of God and being grafted into the olive tree, for example, in Romans. And so you might think that what Jesus is speaking of here when he says, abide in me, has to do with your engagement with and commitment to the body of Christ, the church. Now again, there are, without a doubt, um, those who have taught that, and I think particularly of the Catholic Church as an example here, where your relationship with Jesus is, in a sense, almost determined by or controlled by your connection with the visible church under that banner. And I don't think that's necessarily right at all. Now, that's not to say that your relationship with the people of God is irrelevant here. In verses that we'll read in a future week, where he meet, immediately after this passage, verse 12 onwards, he begins to speak about that reality in your life. He says, for example, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. So clearly, the person who is abiding in Christ, a fruit of that or a result of that will be a passionate commitment to the people of God. And I also know from observation uh, as a pastor over many years that those who neglect their devotion to God's people almost invariably experience a weakening of their faith and the diminishing of their passion and the fall away from God. So I don't think that's irrelevant here. I just don't think it's the point. So I want to push that to one side as well. And just one final negative here idea that I want to dismiss is that what Christ is speaking about here has to do with your devotion or how devout you are in terms of your practice of walking with God in day-to-day life. Now, because I think many people might see an encouragement like this to abide in Christ as an exhortation towards prayer and the study of God's word and spiritual habits that are good for you and do you good. And again, I don't want to diminish the importance of those things. I don't think you can survive without them. If your spiritual life is puttering along in the slow lane, or if you feel like you've come to a halt altogether, it may well be. Because you have never explored and discovered the joy of devotion and the discipline involved in those things. But... To make it about our practices at all is to mean that abiding in Christ is conditional upon or contingent upon the strength of your self-mastery and self-discipline. So that those who are particularly devoted to God are the ones abiding in him and those who, whose efforts are faltering and weak and flailing are those who are somehow not abiding in him. And I think that would be a complete misreading of what Jesus is saying here and actually damaging to our understanding of the gospel. What I rather think is this. It comes through in the imagery that Jesus uses at the top of this passage. He says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And he begins to speak about his disciples as being like branches attached to the vine. And the point of this image is to underscore The relationship of the believer to Jesus is one of absolute, total dependence upon him for everything. 
your life, your breath, your joy, your help, your holiness. And so what he's really speaking about here ought to make us go away with a deeper sense of our weakness and of our reliance and our dependence upon him as the vine. And therefore, what he's really speaking of here, I believe, the essence of what it means to abide in Christ is the exercise of faith by which you are connected with Jesus for everything that you need in life. It has to do with your faith. That would be my summary statement of what I think Jesus is speaking of here. What it means, the idea that sums up what I think he's speaking of when he says, abide in me. And now what I want to do then is just trying to pull that apart for you a little bit more and show you the different ways that he speaks about faith in this passage um, or how we can see it in this passage as an example of what it means for you to abide in Christ. All the time asking the question, are you abiding? What is your relationship with Christ? Is it healthy? Now, let me begin here. I think the first way we can think about your faith is to describe it and what Christ is calling for is humble faith. And I come to this, let me just, we'll get to the passage in a moment or two, but let me just lay out a bit of backdrop to what I see here. If you were to ask the question, what is the most damaging state of heart and mind to healthy, godly spirituality, I do not think that you could hesitate to say that the fundamental sickness of the human heart, the one which seems to fuel all other sicknesses, spiritually speaking, is pride. In the Old Testament, there's a verse that says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it's twice quoted in the New Testament, once by Peter, once by James, underlining what a dangerous thing pride is in the heart, in the human heart. If you want to make God your enemy, it's saying, indulge and foster a great sense of yourself. Whereas it says, on the other hand, that God gives grace to the humble. He draws near to help those who are humble of heart. The problem with pride, as I see it, is it's one of the most subtle enemies because, well, on the one hand, it's easy to see when pride exhibits itself as out-and-out defiance. When a person says, I don't need God, or turns away from God, or says, dismisses the call of God to come to him. So, for example, you see this in Psalm 10. It says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And a bit further in that psalm, he says that the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And again and again throughout the scriptures, unbelief and the rejection of and the rebellion against God is seen through the lens of human pride, that there is this defiance inside that says, I can go it alone. I do not need God or there is no God. And we all recognize that. We understand that we see it when it begins to emerge in our own hearts. It's something sickly and dangerous and damaging. But the problem is, of course, that pride does not only manifest itself as something so obvious as out-and-out defiance against God. And perhaps more dangerously, because it is so subtle, 
Pride can manifest even in the devout and the person who is pious and who's wanting to live a life for God. And you think, well, how does that work? And let me explain to you how I think that works and why I think this is at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. When you become a follower of Jesus, the spiritual transformation begins to take place in your life. That is a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's rapid, sometimes it's slow, but the change is is there. And spiritual growth, therefore, begins to take place, and it begets a kind of success in spiritual things. There are sins that you were once mastered by that you no longer are mastered by, patterns of thought and behavior that are no longer controlling of you. There's a kindness and a generosity of heart that begins to emerge as you copy and uh, model and obey the image of the master, of Jesus Christ. All these things begin to take place in your life and many more. But then this, what I've termed as a kind of success, as you're growing and maturing as a believer, can just as easily move into a kind of confidence in which you begin to feel a sense of arrival or of having matured past tense. And then that so quickly shades into spiritual pride and religious pride. And I don't think that any believer is invulnerable to this, those who particularly are walking with God and seeing growth happen in their lives. I know that if your life, your spiritual life is a a shipwreck, you won't identify with this at this moment in time. But should you experience the grace of God in your life, this is what can happen. You can begin to feel a sense of competence. And that that can then begin to give birth to something damaging, something dangerous, something that's insidious, that works in at the foundations of your dependence on and trust in Christ and begins to erode you from the ground up. And the problem with this is it's so counterintuitive because in every other area of life, we are pursuing and seeking maturity and competence. When you first get a graduate job or you begin your career in in the workplace or wherever you are, You may need some kind of training or induction, depending on the complexity of the work that you're in. That training may be short or long, and some jobs take years, even potentially decades to gain mastery. But the end goal is always clear. I want to be a master of my trade. I want to understand my profession inside out so that I can stand on my own two feet, have competence, and then be, therefore, also a teacher of others. Or it's the same as true in the sporting world, isn't it? So I'm told that you can gain a certain level of competence in sports by which you um, become very pleased with yourself. I've never arrived there myself. Um, But in any sphere of life, the aim is to move from infancy towards maturity, from a kind of inability towards ability and competence and mastery. And of course, there's a sense in which that ought to be true within the Christian the New Testament speaks about going on from milk to solid food, for example, about the necessity of growing up in the Lord, about the desirability of maturity in the Christian life. But here's where it becomes paradoxical. That the heart of this growth, this maturing, this, this, this uh, development of stature as a believer, there can never be the sense of independence, the sense that you somehow have arrived at a point where you no longer depend on Jesus in the same way that you did. On the contrary, I believe that the definition of Christian maturity is 
reliance. That the more you grow in maturity and stature as a believer, the more you feel your moment by moment need for the life and power of Christ in in you. You think, for example, of what Jesus said when he asked his disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then he said, it, it says that he calling a child to him, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think what Christ was teaching his disciples then was the necessity of becoming more childlike in your, in your, in your, in your sense of active reliance and dependence upon God in all of life. The opposite in which you become less dependent is of course an offense to God. It robs him of his glory. It establishes a sense of independence and of arrogance in the human heart. Now, I see this here in the way that Jesus so carefully, gently, and yet forcefully at the same time demolishes any notion in the mind of the disciples that they had somehow arrived. This was, in a way, their graduation ceremony, by the way. Three years under the tutelage of the greatest teacher who had ever lived. At his feet, being prepared and equipped and trained in a hands-on way by the rabbi to then go on and be the teachers of others. And in a sense, you know, like those um, commencements, or not commencement speeches, the the graduation speeches in universities when they all troop up gowns and hats and then a great mind is welcomed in to come and give life lessons and commission people into the rest of their lives. Maybe something like that is happening here when Jesus speaks to them at length in this upper room before he's crucified. And yet, what is he saying to them? He's not saying Brothers, you, have, you are now capable of standing on your own two feet. He says the very opposite. He emphasizes their total inability, their ineptitude without him, their incompetence and powerlessness without the power of Christ in them. This is what he says to them. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that would sound to me, at first, like something a little bit unkind. These men have devoted their life to Jesus over the last three years. Don't they deserve a little bit more encouragement than that? You're completely useless without me, brothers. (laughs) And yet, of course, this is totally in harmony with the gospel that Jesus wanted these men to understand. Do you remember, for example, how he said to them in Matthew uh, chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, those who labor heavily under a heavy yoke are people who feel that they've got to bear the strain 
of weight and responsibility and mastery in order to grow in spiritual things. And Jesus comes along and just lifts it off your shoulders and says, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm the powerful, competent one. You come under the yoke with me and you'll discover ease because I'm bearing all the weight. And Jesus wanted to fix this in their minds, lest they imagine that somehow they were better than others or that they had arrived or graduated. He wants to fix it in their minds so that they will, from that moment on, never forget their absolute, total dependence on him in humility. And therefore, to abide in him in faith is, an, is first of all, a humble faith. And it's not, by the way, By Jesus emphasizing their inability, it's not that they cannot do anything with and for him. On the contrary, he tells them, doesn't he, that they're going to do extraordinary things. He says that whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And so you have to see, of course, this final charge to his disciples before he's crucified is one in which he wants to drive them towards fruitful living, not languishing in self-pity, in a puddle of uselessness. But to push them and say, you can do great things for me. However, you can only do them through humble faith and dependence upon me and in me. Abide in me and see what happens. It reminded me of the passage. The Apostle Paul, you know how he, um, man, if anyone had reason to think of themselves as someone great and able. It was Paul. He had mastered the scriptures, knew them inside out. He had a magnetic leadership gift that enabled him to, to preach and to see many people come to faith. He had suffered for Christ. He would live the life for Jesus. And he was one of the world's great geniuses. I just have no, you know, such admiration for the man. And yet, and yet even he, in a moment of vulnerability, opens up about the need, the way in which Christ formed within him an awareness of his constant need for Jesus. Describes in 2 Corinthians 12, a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. We don't know whether it was a sickness. He sometimes, towards later in life, he was growing blind. We don't know whether it was a person. Sometimes people can be your greatest irritation in life, or a person. We don't know whether it was weariness. We don't know whether it was a temptation that he was struggling with. Whatever it was, he says, I prayed to Jesus about this. And his answer was no. I'm not taking it away. And the explanation of Christ comes to Paul in this way. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And they says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. To abide in Christ is this expression of humble faith in which the more you mature in him, the deeper you feel your day-by-day momentary dependence in him, rather than imagining that you can ever last a breath without him. It's humble faith. It's how the Christian life begins Oh, but friends, you don't just come in by faith. You go deeper by faith and dependence. Does your daily walk show this? 
Are you someone who is demonstrating that humility of heart that drives you to your knees? Are you someone who cries out to him in agony, God, I need you? Who is aware of communing with the Spirit for strength and help in your day-to-day life? It's humble faith. Let me show you another thing. It's also a persevering faith. Now, I think things here get even more serious and sobering. When you understand that this word abide means to remain or to stay. And there is obviously this possibility that Jesus is raising here that the believer may not, it would seem, abide in him, may not remain in him. And so this comes across in the first couple of verses when he describes his father as the vine dresser with his shears going out to prune the vine. And he says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And then a little bit further on in verse 6, he said that if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And you can hardly miss the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. It raises all kinds of questions. Is he saying that a believer can lose their salvation? Is he saying that it's possible for somebody who has been saved and is part of Christ's people to somehow be cut off and burned, as it were, you know, rejected? Now, I want to answer this carefully. I think on the one hand, we have to reassert our confidence that emerges from the teaching of Jesus himself, especially that Christ will save to the end those whom he calls to himself. This is part of Christ's teaching on the nature of him choosing or electing us. And it comes through even in this passage in John 15, a little bit further on in verse 16. You see it says, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So he's saying, friends, don't imagine that you're my followers because somehow you thought that you you chose me. No, no, no. It didn't work like that. I took hold of you. And then I determined what it is that you're going to do with your life. I have appointed you to bear fruit. And this is reinforced in a number of other places in in Christ's own teaching. For example, in John chapter 6, I love these verses, but in John chapter 6, this is how he puts it. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So whoever belongs to Jesus, he says, he'll never let go of you. A bit further on, verse 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me. In other words, this is the Father's will, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Christ would somehow fail in his mission if anyone that the Father had given to Jesus should ever be lost. John chapter 10, lest there still be any doubt in your mind. But John chapter 10, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So here we have two hands got their grip on you. Christ who will never let go, the Father who will never let go, which means that if you're a believer in Jesus and you're genuinely saved, you're his forever. 
But at the same time, the New Testament has this, this theme, which I think is what's coming through in John 15. This possibility that someone may not make it. It comes through, for example, in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is telling the story of the, the parable of the sower. And you remember how he describes four types of soil upon which the seed of the word of the gospel is sown. And each soil represents a different, represents a different type of heart. And the first type is the, the, the hard path. He says that the, the seed of God's word is sown there. He says the birds come and snatch it away. They eat it. it doesn't, there's, no, there's no life in that seed. Nothing ever happens. And it's just someone who hears the gospel and says, oh, that's nice, and walks away. The fourth type is the person who is like good soil. The seed goes deep into the soil and begins to grow and bears a lot of fruit. And that's someone with a healthy, vigorous spiritual life. You came to know Jesus and you never looked back. The more challenging descriptions are the second and third soil. The second one he describes like this. He says, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And then he he explains what he's described there a bit further on. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I can tell you as a pastor that whatever my theology in terms of the doctrine of election and so on, I know the phenomenon that Christ is speaking of here. I've seen this too many times to count and more than I want to ever see. Of those who hear about Jesus, what he has accomplished for you, his willingness to die on the cross to save you from your sins and then raise from the dead to give you eternal life and the joy that is often seen in someone who hears that for the first time or understands it for the first time, I shall say, and the willingness to want to follow Christ. And then I've seen individuals who've made that kind of a profession in Jesus fall away and give up. He says he has no root in himself. Endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Whatever response there was to Christ initially, it wasn't substantial. It wasn't real. It was just surface level. It was shallow. And as soon as it becomes hard to to be a Christian, either because of what you have to say no to in order to obey Christ, or because of the cost of bearing the name of Jesus in a world that actually often despises him and his people, that cost is too much, and so the journey comes to an end. What is he speaking of there? There's another description there where he says that other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. You've seen that, the edge of a field where they have the hedges. 
especially in, in our nation, the thorny, thick hedges. And some of the seed will land there, but it will never grow properly. And he says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. In other words, whatever spiritual life seemed to be in that person, it is quickly oppressed and smothered by the many interests, distractions, anxieties, ambitions, concerns, pursuits this world lays before you. So that if Christ was important to you for a moment, he no longer is, because everything else has just drowned out the voice of Jesus and he is a distant memory. How do we make sense of this, friends? I think that what's being described here is the possibility that a person can have an outward association with Jesus. Call themselves a Christian, go to church, but without ever having experienced the inner transformation that comes through the gospel, through faith in the gospel. Don Carson, who's one of the greatest contemporary living theologians, says that there is a persistent strand of New Testament witness that depicts men and women with some degree of connection with Jesus. As I'm saying, that they're connected with him somehow. Maybe they pray, maybe they come to church, whatever it is. Or with the Christian church, who nevertheless, by failing to display the grace of perseverance, finally testify or show that the transforming life of Christ has never pulsated within them. In other words, it's possible to appear to be a Christian for a season, but never have truly been a follower of Jesus. And I think that is what Christ is speaking about here when he's talking about these branches, these dead branches. They somehow grew attached to the vine, but they were never alive. How would you know? Well, I think we'll leave this for another week, but it really has to do with the fruitfulness of your life what Christ means by that. But the exhortation, therefore, is this. That not only is abiding in Christ to do with the, humil- the humble quality of our faith and of dependence upon him, it also has to, be, to do with this, this perseverance, this resolve to stay with Jesus no matter what, to own your faith, to never deny him, to say he's mine and I need him, No matter what is thrown at me and no matter what happens in life, I am Christ's and Christ is mine. That's true faith. Because the person who is a true believer has seen the inestimable, incomparable worth of Jesus over against anything else in this world. And even if you find that your faith is weak or flailing or struggling, ultimately you can never let go or be let go of. You belong to him. He's yours and you're his. Therefore, to abide in Christ is this persevering faith. Keep going. Never stop. Let me show you one final thing before I close. Abiding in Christ also has to do with you walking in obedience with Jesus. Jesus. 
And again, this is another sobering and weighty thing that he has to say to his disciples. It's so, so searching. But it comes through in the last verses we read, verses 9 to 11, where he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, what is abiding in Jesus, this quality of faith and trust in our Savior? What does that have to do with obedience? In fact, isn't it rather problematic to bring in obedience here as though suddenly we're making salvation a matter of your works rather than of your faith and of your trust in the competence of your Savior? How are the two things related? And the answer, as I see it, is this. And this is so important for every believer to grasp and to understand. The answer is this, that obedience is always an expression of your trust in God. Particularly in his goodness. Or to put it negatively, disobedience is always the manifestation or expression of a lack of trust in God's goodness. Let me use a somewhat silly example just to kind of illustrate this. Imagine a father returning home from work and calling his son and saying to his son, listen, I'm going to pick up some wonderful food on the way home. Don't eat the leftovers or the ready meal that's in the fridge. Wait till I get back. Now I know having passed through teenage years as a male, that one of the greatest tortures you could ever endure was hunger. And I don't know, I, I'm glad that I'm, never, I'm not a teenager anymore. There were times when I thought I was going to die. For, for hunger, starvation was setting in. There's a very real possibility that death was imminent. And so in that moment, the test is real. Do I eat what's in front of me and spoil my appetite? Or do I wait in trust and faith? That, um, that, that my father will deliver. In a sense, that for me is the, is the picture, a picture which kind of summarizes Christian obedience. It's there in the garden, isn't it, when the father says to Adam and Eve, oh, you can eat any of these trees, just don't eat that one. They're like, well, that one looks so good. So what about all the others? But that one is amazing. And suddenly... The seed of doubt comes in in which you begin to think, well, God isn't good and he's withholding something good from me. And if I don't take what I can have, what pleasure I can have here and now, maybe I'll never experience it. So we take the cheap, easy route to pleasure instead of the lasting, permanent route to joy and happiness. Every time you succumb to temptation, that is the decision that you're making in your mind. You're saying, I don't really believe the promises of God. My father is not going to make me happy. I need to take what pleasure I can now. And so disobedience is always a manifestation of unbelief. It's saying, I don't really believe you're good or that you'll deliver. Now, It's in this vein, I think, that Jesus is saying to his disciples in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. 
Because he's saying to them once more, keep trusting me. And your trust will be demonstrated in the way that you obey. You follow my teaching. Not so that you can work your way into my love. As though you're saved by your obedience. But rather because you have been surrounded with my love. And now I want you to obey to demonstrate your trust in me. I want to give you a few encouragements as I bring this to a close. For some of you may think this seems impossible. How can I obey the Savior and express this dependence abiding in him through obedience when I find myself failing too many times to count? And I'll give you a few encouragements. One is this. Obedience is possible when you know you're loved. This is why immediately before Jesus talks about obeying him, he says, as the Father, this verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Think about that for a second. As the Father has loved me, how has the Father loved the Son? More than my small mind can ever comprehend. We're talking about the relationships within the Trinity from eternity past. And Jesus says, that's the quality and degree of my love for you. Now abide in my love. Oh, and obey. It is possible, isn't it? We see very often that those who are raised in an atmosphere absent of love, that obedience to authority becomes almost impossible because there's no trust. And children raised in homes where they are just neglected or, or hurt almost invariably foster rebellious hearts. Because obedience comes from trust. And the Christian obeys because they have been overwhelmed with and surrounded by and infused with the love of Jesus. You don't obey in order to experience his love. You, you obey because you have known his love. And if you're finding it impossible to obey the Lord, Maybe you haven't encountered this love. Call out to him. So let the love, your love be shed abroad in my heart. That's the scripture. Pray it back to him and ask that God will show his love to you. That's one thing. Another thing is this. Obedience is possible when you are pursuing real joy. Just after charging them to obey in verse 10, then in verse 11 he says, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You've got to feel the goodness of Jesus in this moment. He wants the best for his people. He's not trying to make your life miserable by putting you under a burden of law and obedience and instruction and command so that you will feel crushed and squashed and all your liberties taken away. He rather wants to see you flourish as you walk his narrow path because he says it will lead to your ultimate happiness. And you know this, you know this, friend, because what, what moment of sin and rebellion against Jesus has ever led you to a place of lasting happiness? Hasn't it ever, only ever just delivered momentary fleeting pleasure? And yet we're fools because we go back, as the scriptures say, like a dog to its vomit. You've seen dogs do that? They eat too fast, they barf it up, and then they lick it up again. 
And he said, that's what the Bible says we're like when, when we forget the goodness of God and go back to our sin. We're like a dog returning to its vomit. It's a vivid picture because it, it's not vile enough, let me put it like that, for the reality. Jesus says, I want you to know real joy. You're struggling. You're struggling to trust me, to obey me. You know I want to do you good. Turn away from your sin and no real happiness. One final thing to say here. Obedience is possible when you know you're loved, when you're pursuing joy. And I also say this, it's possible when you're abiding in Christ. Remember what Christ has said here. That he said that apart from me you can do nothing. And so there's a sense in which we come full circle. We abide in Christ in order to obey and we obey in order to abide in Christ. The two things are mutually complementary and feed off one another. We We depend on Jesus for our obedience. And then we obey so that we can keep depending upon and trusting in Jesus. And there's a beautiful, virtuous dynamic to this. Christ is calling you to an obedience every day that is rooted in and founded on desperate dependence upon him. Lord, I can't obey you without your strength and your help. I need you. Lord, pleading with him, God, help me to walk your path. Help me, Lord. I want to close and just ask you these questions, friends. Are you abiding in Christ? Is your abiding in Christ marked by a deeper, more conscious, more a more obvious demonstration of your dependence upon Jesus rather than your independence from him? Is your walk with God demonstrating that you are you're pressing into him for strength more and more the, the more you grow? Are you abiding in him in humility? Are you persevering? Or have you been on the verge of giving up or walking away? Friend, does Christ have his grip on you? Don't turn away from Jesus. And are you obeying him? You may well have been walking in a measure of disobedience and you know Jesus is speaking to you right now and he wants to call you home. He wants to call you back. The way in which he wants you to express your faith in him, not just faith that he died for you to cleanse you, but faith that he knows the best for you right now in terms of your day-to-day decisions, that is expressed through obedience. They're saying, Jesus, I'm going your way because your way is best. It's Christ calling you back to his path, to abiding in him in faithful obedience.